Hey, welcome to Kingsway Caring Bar. We are a community inspired by love to live differently. I'm Dave, one of the pastors here. It's so great to have you with us. We pray this teaching will inspire you, build your faith, and lead you to a life of fullness and freedom in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Imagine being that person as you see that towering, enormous 50-foot wave pummeling towards you and all that stands between you and it is nothing. And it unloads all of its power right on top of your head. And you get thrown, as did this guy, Sean Walsh, into a fray, underwater, tumbling, rolling, held down. In fact, that's what it's called, a hold down. Um, it's, it, it's a phenomenon that happens when um, you get what is in surfing terms called um, getting caught inside, where you are surfing a particular uh, reef and you are sitting on your board waiting for a wave where you ought to be and then all of a sudden out of nowhere a rogue set would come marching from somewhere across the other side of the ocean and in its sights it has you. And you start paddling towards the horizon, scratching, 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 only to get caught inside. And if you've been in this situation, you would know the feeling. I mean, the power of the wave rolls you like a rag doll. It plunges you toward the ocean floor, leaving you feeling helpless. Immense pressure is exerted on every part of your body as you are descending into the depths and rising again and descending again. Pressure builds up in your ears. You know, you get to that point of not being able to breathe, but yet trying to breathe, and it's almost like you're drawing oxygen from every other part of your body just to survive, and your throat doing these ones. You know, vertigo sets in. You don't quite know which way is up. All of the bubbles and all of the chaos. You start swimming, but you might be going down. You're not quite sure if you're heading down or you're heading up. You are disoriented. You're at the whim of the ocean. The power as it rolls and as it tumbles. I mean, in one way or another, life Indeed, life right now might look for you or feel somewhat like wave after wave after wave is crashing on top of you. Maybe life feels like you have been caught on the inside. Maybe that the situation or circumstance that you have been in, you thought you were in the right spot, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, something crept up and lurched itself upon you. Maybe as you watched old mate in the video, in his hold down, maybe you could relate. Feelings of being pummeled and heaved by a situation or by the season that you find yourself in, held down by the power and the weight and the pressure of what may have just unloaded upon you. I mean, where do we turn when we are overwhelmed, when the unexpected waves of life hit? Where do we go? What do we do when we're caught on the inside, so to speak, and we copper one wave and then we come up and then another wave and then we come up and then another wave? 
What do we do when we're caught in that situation? I mean, in the surf, you really only have one of two options. One is to scratch for the surface, to try and climb your way back to the top to get air. You know, are we meant to muster every piece of energy within us to try and act as uh, people who can save ourselves in our situation and just keep scrambling and scratching, hoping that we might get to the top? Or there's the second option, that we just roll with it, that we just resign ourselves to the power of the ocean or to the situation and allow what happens to happen, allowing you maybe to surface for air if you're so lucky. Or is there another option? Is there another way for us other than trying to get ourselves to the surface or other than just resigning ourselves to the, be at the whim of whatever we're in. Is there another way? Is there a way to endure the sets of life as they crash on our heads that neither are a desperate attempt at self-salvation nor a foregoing of hope? The last two weeks in our house has been uh, quite literally a two-week hold down, like two weeks of wave after wave after wave. I went down with the man flu, nearly died. Um, Banjo, he got a similar thing to what ended up him in hospital two months ago. Uh, That same week on the Thursday, Ronnie developed um, croup so bad that his breathing uh, was um, so limited that he was uh, unable to breathe. So he went straight to emergency and at least spent a night um, in hospital with baby Ronnie. Um, last week, then Poppy was unwell this week, and Elise has been unwell this week. It has been wave after wave after wave. And for you, it might be similar. It might be that you're overwhelmed by the onslaught of the parenting wave. Who is with me in that one? The parenting wave. That's a big one, a gnarly one. You know, the, the, the pressure of news this week of a turn in your employment or in your finances, maybe your work at the moment is like a 20-foot wave barreling towards you and it is just ready to eat you up and spit you out. And maybe it's the, you're being tumbled by conflict in your home or conflicted relationships at work or conflicted relationships at school or uh, maybe there's a, a wave that's hit you of news of a loved one who has uh, fallen ill or whatever the case might be. I mean, what do we do? Where do we go? How do we navigate life when we're being held down? How do we move forward when it feels like there is an endless barrage of waves? And whether it's the hold down of sickness or tiredness or the the hold down of sudden uh, turn or long-term wrestle with mental health or hold down from an unexpected loss or employment or income, finances, whether it's battling feelings of loneliness or isolation, conflicted relationships, feeling forgotten or betrayed, or for reasons you quite can't put your finger on, you feel like you are being held under, gasping, reaching, thirsting for air. What do you do? What help is available to you. I would say a really practical way, and this is why we're in the Psalms, a really practical place that you can go when you're feeling like the waves of life 
are overwhelming you and you are held under and in a spin is to go to the Psalms. They are a wonderful place to land. In fact, if I was to give the Psalms a title, if, they were, if it was to be a bestseller on a bookstore, I would name it this, A Manifesto of Hope. That would be the title. A Manifesto of Hope. Subtitle, The Chronicles of a Man, Husband, Father and King Caught on the Inside. I mean, David knew what having the waves of life explode on his head were like. When we read the Psalms, we see pictures of David like that surfer in the video, coming up against situations and circumstances where he is in an absolute mess, where he is paddling as fast as he could to avoid the incoming thing that is about to take him out. We see a man being drowned, a man being thrown about and crushed by the weight of his circumstances as they bore down on him. And yes, David had some wonderful, wonderful successes and victories. But the Psalms is a, uh, is a vibrant and vivid picture of a man who lives in the tension of both acute hardship and in great joy. A story that we can find ourselves in. I mean, David was held down by forgottenness and abandonment. You know, as a young guy out in the paddock, the eighth-born son of Jesse. And Samuel's picked to go and pick the next king of Israel, and they line up all seven kids, and um, Samuel walks past, no, it's not any of these. Do you have another one? Oh, yeah, that, that little the runt of the litter. He's out there cutting the dags off the sheep's bums out in the, out in the field. We'll go and get him. We don't think it's going to be him, but it, it might be him. You know, from a young age, David knew what it meant to be forgotten and to be abandoned. He was held down by being judged unfairly. Who are you to go and fight that, that giant? You're too young, or you're too this, or you're too that. He was held down by self-doubt. Maybe they're right. Maybe I am too young and too weak to fight this giant. David had waves of hate and suspicion crash over him. He had an enemy throwing spears of harmful intent in his general direction. You know, he was playing music for Saul one day, as he did. That was his job, to play music. And Saul um, was getting a little bit upset with David because he was gaining some popularity. And Saul thought, I'm going to take this kid out once and for all. And hanging on his wall was his prized spear the one he'd probably taken other people out with, and he got it off the wall, and as David was there playing the harp, you know, I can't play the harp, I don't know what it sounds like, but I'm sure it was peaceful and lovely and like a wedding, and all of a sudden, whooshka, a spear, whack, right past his head, he dodges it, and then Saul has the audacity to go and get the spear and chase David around the room, and two more times, he gets the spear thrown at him, but survives. I mean, David experienced unspeakable loss and grief that no doubt rattled him to the core. I mean, he lost a baby at seven days old. And David stuffed up, like royally stuffed up, pardon the pun. He was in the castle, perving on the girl next door, saw her bathing on the rooftop and thought, hey, hello, sent for her, had an affair with her, I mean, he was, like we can be, plunged deep under waves of guilt and of shame. I mean, David's family was incredibly complex. He endured hold-down after hold-down of family conflict, even abuse, horrid abuse in his family, infighting, even murder within his own family unit. David's life was an exercise in getting caught 
on the inside. It was marked by wave after wave of tragedy and triumph, joy and pain, success and failure, mistakes and forgiveness, heartache and hope, like we do. He lived in the tension of great joy and hardship and everything in between. How did David survive his hold downs? I mean, did he just resign himself to the events of life? Did he just roll with every wave that hit him, hoping that at one day or one moment it would run out of energy and he could surface for air? I mean, do we see David in the Psalms um, with an attempt of self-salvation to scramble himself to the surface to try and get him back to where he ought to be? There's one particular moment for David in, um, we read of it in 2 Samuel chapter 15. It's where Absalom, who was David's son, began hatching a plan to undermine his dad's leadership and kingship and overthrow his reign as king. Absalom wanted dad's seat. Absalom wanted to be the king. And as Absalom's plan grew, so did the people that he convinced to join him in the overthrow. So in total fear, knowing the murderous ability of Absalom, because it wouldn't be the first time he would have killed, David fled for his life. He left Jerusalem. Not only him, but hundreds of people who loved him and believed in him as the king. They made their escape from Jerusalem. They crossed the Kidron River and they entered out into the wilderness. I mean, I can only imagine that as David walked with his back turned on everything he'd ever built for and believed for, that it was like an enormous wave of overwhelm crashing upon him. That behind him were the hardships of his childhood. Behind him, the trouble of his early years. Behind him, the mistakes that he had made. Behind him, the emotional fight to maintain his honour for Saul Uh, but also not wanting to be killed by him. David had his wives kidnapped, his kids taken from him either by enemy or by death. His house was burned down, and now his city, his beloved city, Jerusalem, the city of peace, the place where he encountered God himself, all gone. Can only imagine the feelings that David would have had as he walked and left everything he'd ever built for and believed for. He, in this moment, was held down. He was being rolled and tumbled and pushed to the bottoms of despair. In his barrage of overwhelm and despair in 2 Samuel 15, 30, Um, It tells us this, that David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. I mean, as he walked, I can imagine him kicking the dust. Why me? You know, it wasn't meant to end like this. I'm the king. Why am I in the wilderness? This is my job, not his job. Our people have been through this before. I don't want to go through it again. This isn't what a king looks like. What gives? I mean, maybe you've been there. I know I have at times when it's all become too much. You're walking that journey of 
Just crying out to God in the hard times. Kicking the road as you go. God, why me? Hitting the walls that you walk past. Why now? God, this isn't how it was meant to end. This isn't what the story was meant to be like. But God, you said, you said it would look like this, but here I am and it looks like this. That's unfair, God. I've sat on surfboards, I've sat in boats, I've walked riverbanks with fishing rods in hand, I've driven country roads, and I have cried out to God in the middle of my own life's hold downs. See, what David did in this moment of overwhelm, in this moment of being pinned down, tossed about, and rolled by the waves of disappointment, grief, doubt, loneliness, and fear, is he fell on his knees and he prayed. He cried out to God. A prayer recorded for us in Psalm 61, and it will go onto the screen. This is David in his hold down. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you. From under these waves, I call to you. When I'm held down, being tossed about, I call to you. When my heart is faint, when I'm out of breath, when I'm out of energy, when I'm tired and when I'm exhausted, when I don't know which way is up and I have nothing left to give to fight the tide anymore, I cry out to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Is that it, David? Lead me to the rock that's higher than I? I mean, what about when my heart is faint? Return me to my calling. Return me back to my city. Return me back to what I've built. Return me back to God what you said would be for my life. What about those things? No, but return me to a, a take me, lead me to a rock. How about lead me back to safety? How about lead me back to my home? How about lead me back to somewhere familiar? How about lead me to somewhere where there's food and there's water to drink? How about lead me where I don't have to have the burden of keeping all of these people alive with me? No. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I mean, was he looking to a rock further up the hill than where he was? Was he looking to a rock that looked more comfortable to sit on? Or wasn't so jagged on his bottom? Not so cold? Was he wishing for a smoother rock? A rock perhaps with a better view? Lead me to the rock up there. I'll be able to see everything from up there. It will be much more pleasant and pretty. Was he looking at somebody else's rock, wishing he was on their rock? Rocks, rocks in the desert weren't a new idea. Rocks in desert places had happened before. You might remember in Exodus 17, at the beginning of Israel's Exodus campaign, and their beginning of their 40 years in the, where? the desert, in the wilderness, they came to a place called Rephidim. Now, that's important. The place called Rephidim, where there was no water for them to drink at all. That's a pretty overwhelming situation, if you ask me. And they began to argue with Moses. Moses, why the flip did you bring us out here? For our livestock and for our children to die. Take us back to where there was water. 
Moses, overwhelmed with the request, not knowing what to do, he goes to God and says, what am I going to do with these people? Whinging, complaining, thirsty people, how dare they want to have a drink? God instructs him to go to the rock of Horeb and to strike it. I've got a rock there. Strike the rock, God said to him, and water will come out of it. So Moses approached the rock and he got out his staff and whooshka! Believe it or not, water from the rock started flowing. Moses he gave the rock a new name. He called it Meribah. He looked at the rock as it was pouring out water and like a newborn kid, what am I going to call you? That's not how we did it with our kids. You might think it with the names they've got. but said, so I'm going to call that Meribah. I'm going to call the rock Meribah. When this wasn't the last time that this happened. In Numbers chapter 20, toward the end of Israel's 40 years in the desert, the same thing happens. This time, though, they were at a place called Kadesh, a long way away from Rephidim. Like, Rephidim is down south. It'd be like, let's call it Melbourne. And Kadesh, where they are now, some almost 40 years later, in Kadesh is like being in Sydney, a long way away. And again, there was no water for the congregation, so they assembled themselves again against Moses and Aaron, whinging and complaining, did you bring us out here to die? We said, I've got you this far, haven't I? It just so happens that there was a rock there. In Numbers 20, the passage is called the waters of Meribah. The waters of where? The waters of, of Meribah. But aren't we in Kadesh? We're, we're in a different place, but there's the same rock. When did someone sneak the rock in their rucksack for a dry day? After they saw what God did the first time, thinking just to be prepared... I'm going to bring Meribah with us. And someone thought, with that kind of forethought, 40 years away from now, we'll be in a place called Kadesh and we're going to be thirsty again. And we're going to pull out Meribah from the backpack and we're going to make it happen again. We're going to make it rain. I mean, how did the same rock get from Rephidim to Kadesh? Oh, there's a lot of ground between Rephidim and Kadesh, there are high mountains, there are deep valleys, there were wars and there was peacetime, there was famine and there was plenty. But the rock somehow made it from Rephidim to Kadesh. I mean, more fussed about getting a drink than solving the mystery of the moving rock, they all piped up again. Hey Moses, how about it? Remember the stunt you pulled for mum and dad? You've got to remember, 40 years on, 
kids would have been kids then. These kids now would have been adults. Remember, our parents told us about the time where you hit the rock back there in Rephidim and you whacked it and water came out and we drank. How about you do it again? How about it? And surely enough, Moses goes back to Meribah. And God told him to speak to it, but he disobeyed and he hit it with his stick. That's a preach for another day. He hit the the rock. And again, water flowed for the people again. Interestingly, we don't hear about this rock in between these two events, 40 years apart. But it was far too cool a rock to go unnoticed completely in Scripture again. We don't read about it in the Exodus story. We don't hear about the person that smuggled it. We don't know whether it grew legs. We don't know whether someone chopped it in. We don't know. We don't know. We just don't know. That is, until Paul chimes in. Paul? New Testament? Yeah, Paul chimes in about the rock. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 to 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And ate all the same spiritual food and drank all the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. What now? You said, what, Paul? The spiritual rock followed them? (laughs) I don't know about you, but I don't often have lumps of stone follow me around in my life. Ones that exude water when I'm thirsty. How convenient would that be? But it's just not the case. But Paul, a spiritual rock that followed them, and the spiritual rock was who? Jesus was the spiritual rock? I mean, let, let that sink in for a minute. That as the Israelites journeyed in the wilderness for 40 years, there was a rock following them? Are you telling me, Paul, that this rock followed them? As in, you meant it went with them through the desert? That it was present with them the whole time in the wilderness? Yeah. John Byron from the Biblical Archaeological Society examines this passage in his Biblical Views column, Paul, Jesus and the Rolling Stone. Cool title, I like it. And he notes this, Interestingly, Paul is not the only person to suggest that the Israelites were followed by a water source during their wilderness wanderings. A first century source called Pseudos Philos, Biblical Antiquities, makes a similar claim and says this, But as for his own people, that is God, he led them forth into the wilderness. Forty years did he rain bread from heaven for them, and he brought them quails from the sea, and a well of water followed them. And Pseudophilo claims that a well of water followed the Israelites through the wilderness, whereas here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that it was a rock that followed them. I mean, how do these two ancient interpreters come to their conclusions? I mean, what they seem to have concluded, Byron explains, is that since Moses named the rock at Rephidim in Exodus 17 
and the one at Kadesh in Numbers 20, Meribah, the logical conclusion was that both were one and of the same rock, um, that it therefore must have accompanied Israel on their journey. 1 Corinthians 10.4 reflects a common, ancient, mind-blowing interpretation that the Israelites were followed by a water source in the middle of their desert wilderness wanderings. Now, up every mountain we face, down into every valley that we would descend, through every desert that we endure, through every raging torrent of water that we cross, through every victory and every defeat, through hell and through high water, through every wave that they and we copped on the head, every hold down they endured, Christ the rock was with them. There is hope in your hold down and his name is Jesus. There is hope in your hold down and his name is Jesus. In a Jewish text from the late 2nd century CE called the Tosefta, it is said that this accompanying rock would settle itself on a high place of the camp, usually by the tent of meeting. It would just work its way. Meribah would meander its way to the high place in camp. And so when David cried out from his hold down, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, he was crying out, lead me to the one who is with me in the desert. Lead me to the one who is there with my success and in my failures. Lead me to the one who is there in my mistakes and in my battles. Lead me to the nourisher of my thirsty soul. Lead me to the source and the river of life. Lead me to the refuge who is Christ. And David's hope was not in any other rock, not in the rock of his wisdom, not in the rock of his wealth, not in the rock of his successes, not in the rock of his wishful thinking, not in the rock of the prophetic word that his pastor gave to him, not in the rock of his favourite preacher, not in the rock of his insta-famous influences that he followed to get all of life's advice from. His hope was in the rock that Moses sung of in Deuteronomy 32. The rock, his work is perfect and all of his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. I mean, Hannah, when she sings a song of worship, she says this, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Isaiah proclaims it, trust in the Lord forever. The Lord God is an everlasting rock. So this is our hope. This is our hope in our hold down. That through all of our wandering, through all of our desert places, through all of the hold downs and sets we cop on the head, we have a God who is near. We have an accompanying rock who follows you, a spiritual rock, as Paul describes, and his name is Jesus. I mean, the rock did not follow them because they were perfect. The rock did not follow them because the rock had nothing else to do. The rock was not a roadie. 
smuggled in someone's backpack for a sneaky, sneaky sip along the way. The rock followed them to nourish them. The rock followed them to feed them. The rock followed them because the rock loved them. The rock loved his people. And so he followed them. And so, friends, we have a God who is near in your hold down, in the waves that crash on your head. We have a God who listens. We have a God who saves. We have a God who follows us wherever we may be, who is a refuge. A God who is strong and his name is Jesus. In him we have a God who is with us and sustains us while we are rolled by the waves and we are plunged to the depths. Our hope is in a God who finds us in the darkness, a God who dives into our despair, a God who gives us air when we cannot breathe, a God who gives us strength for the struggle, a God who orients us, orients us when we're lost, and a God who leads us through. Lead me to the rock. Don't lead me to the comfortable place. Don't lead me to what I think I need. Don't lead me to the place of my complaints. Don't lead me to the place of anywhere else, but lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Luke 6, 47 to 49. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he was like. This is Jesus, the rock, speaking. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid foundation on the rock when the flood rose and the stream broke against that house it could not shake because it had been well built build build your life upon the, the present rock dig dig deep to find him in prayer in hard work in community through your long suffering, through diving in deeply to God's word, dig deep to find the rock. Build your life upon the present rock. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It's a prayer I invite you to pray. It's a prayer of digging deep to find the rock, to find the firm foundation when the ground is shaky. And the rock is, as was shared so succinctly last week, is our level ground. Lead me to level ground. All right. This is what we heard all last week if you were here or you were listening online. It wasn't lead me to level ground that looks like what I think it should look like. Level ground for every voice in our community looked like being led back to Jesus. Keep doing that, church. He is your firm foundation. He is your level ground. He is your ever-present, following you around, ready to nourish, to restore, to renew, to heal, to give you everything you need as you wander through your lives. He is the hope 
in your hold down. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you've been blessed by this teaching. If you'd like to connect with us, make a financial gift, or find out more about Kingsway Churches, head to kingsway.org.au. Have a good one.